Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe. And if this is your first episode and you're wondering what this whole thing is all about, well, I'll tell you. Every week, I find my head surgically attached to the body of a different friend and cinephile. Together, we are given a note containing a theme, sometimes specific and sometimes vague. Our job is then to pick a pair of movies that fit that theme and then watch and discuss. This is The Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. Alright everybody, welcome back to the show. Welcome back. We are once again slinking back into the shadows as summer kind of draws to a close. In fact, this is uh, this is going to be our last summer in the shadows because it is no longer summer or it will not be summer here shortly and we are heading into fall and this is going to be our transitionary episode. We're going to be coming out of the shadows and into the darkness and uh, the crisp fall air of Halloween season. And so to transition into that, uh, we'll talk about the movies in a minute, but uh, to join me today to transition into fall and Halloween and the spooky season is once again, Jacob Davison, finally making his return appearance. Jacob, how's it going? Uh, Going good. Uh, Just came back from a trip from the East Coast and kind of getting back into the swing of things here, but uh, excited to be back and join you again on the show. Yeah, yeah, I, I... I really enjoyed uh, our, our last episode. People can go back and listen to that. And that was, um, it was Lake Mungo. And uh, why am I blanking on it? Noir, Noroi, right? Noroi the Curse. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, go back and listen to that. That's actually one of my favorite episodes that I've done. Um, all the other guests, don't, don't tell them. They, they all suck. But that was a fun episode. I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> Uh, you were you were silent for a minute. I'm like, oh no! I hope that landed as a joke. <laughs> uh, oh, I thought that was for the audience. Sorry. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, so welcome back to the West Coast. Um, it, apparently, just in time. I mean, we're pulling the curtain back. We're recording this early. It is not quite September when this is going to come out. Uh, but you came back just for the temperatures to start to rise again. Like we've been kind of in the low mid 80s. And now, like, we're going to be in the 90s all week. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it was a lot hotter on the East Coast. Mm. So it's just kind of interesting how uh, that's going around. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, I, I just started to look into the East Coast weather because, you know, with the, all the hurricane warnings that I was seeing how my friends were doing. Uh, it, it, I feel like we've kind of missed the worst of it here in Southern California. Like, in North, up North, it is, a hellscape right but here we've i mean it gets worse inland of course and uh like palm springs and everything but for us i think we've we've been doing okay i think we got over 100 for a few days but like last year by this time we had had weeks over 100 degrees and uh so this this year like i mean it's not like the world's gonna get any better but this year i'm like i'm okay (laughs) Through that, yeah, it's yeah. I just left before uh, Hurricane Henri hit, so you know, thankfully, I I was able to uh, you know get out of there in time. Yeah, I haven't at this point. I haven't checked up on what, but it got downgraded, I think, to a tropical storm at this point. Mm -hmm. It did, but but still, you know, it was a big storm. 
Yes, yes. Uh, well, anyway, let's get to the movies. We are today uh, discussing the note here, the note, the title of the episode. It is The Case of the Two Harrys to end these, this noir series I'm doing. And it is also horror noir, which serves well to transition us to the spooky season. It is uh, uh, the movies we're going to be discussing today are Angel Heart from 1987 and Lord of Illusions from 1995. Uh, mm hmm. Angel Heart I, is a movie I really enjoy. Lord of Illusions is absolutely one of my favorites from one of my favorite authors and filmmakers. He's made, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get into this. Like, he's made three films and I think they're all fantastic. And uh, oh, yeah. we'll talk all about that here in a little bit. But first, we're going to take a quick break and you guys get to listen to the trailer for Angel Heart, which we'll be discussing on the other side. Mr. Angel? My client, Monsieur Louis Sadko. Do you by chance remember the name Johnny Favorite? My interest is only in finding out if he's alive or if he's dead. You want me to check it out? My private detective paid to snoop around. He's dead, Mr. Angel. Well, you know what they say about slugs. They always leave slime in their tracks. Are you afraid? Yeah, I'm afraid. I'm a murder suspect already in two cases. Did you kill him? No, but the cops might think I did. The Prince of Darkness protects the powerful. The egg is the symbol of the soul. Did you know that? It's funny, I have a feeling I've met you before. Angel Heart is a 1987 neo-noir starring Mickey Rourke as Harry Angel, a New York private investigator in 1955. Harry is hired by the mysterious and significantly named Louis Cipher to track down a musician by the name of Johnny Favorite. What seems to be a simple missing persons case soon takes a turn for the deadly as bodies begin to pile up during the investigation and Harry is plagued by dark visions and strange religious ceremonies. Now, this is a movie that I think, I, I, I only saw it for the first time a few years ago and now i've seen it a, a, a few times a, a couple times since then and it's a movie i like a lot it's got some great atmosphere it's got some cool images it uh it also i think suffers a little bit which we can get into by you know decades of films like this i i wish i had seen this earlier because i i feel like um like some of this ha has been ruined just by audience familiarity but before we get into all of that this was your choice this week what um what what made you pick this movie what drew you to this movie and what's your history with it well you know when you mentioned you know noir noir and we kind of settled on doing genre noir horror noir this was the first one to come to mind because you know it's just such a seamless blending of uh noir elements with uh, horror story and 
a pretty high-end one at that. Um, and it's just got such a stacked cast because, you know, you got Mickey Rourke and Robert De Niro as like the two, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, leads or, you know, kind of hooks on on the cast. Um, and yeah, no, just it's... And also you can't denote the um, significance of, of the movie. For one thing, it was a major influence on the Silent Hill franchise. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah, no, the uh, director actually cited it as an influence, and you kind of see that in the uh, sequences with uh, An- Angel in the elevator. Like, that was a specific um, uh, source of inspiration. Yeah, I, I mean, I can totally see it once you said it, but I just I was not aware of that connection. Yeah, no, it, it it's surprising how these things go, but yeah, just... it. it it, and I'm sure it has other other influences elsewhere. And, you know, it's just, it's, there aren't a whole lot of kind of uh, cross-genre noir stories like this. But, um, you know, just when, again, when you brought it up, this was the first to come to mind. And you can definitely understand why. Yeah, there's, a, there's only a few. And a lot of the, like, movies that get called noir horror are kind of either just, like, noir that is a little bit darker or or um towards more towards the thriller or it's horror that just has kind of like that expressionistic lighting like a lot of i I mean i went looking up lists and a lot of these were movies like uh that that weren't really like uh diabolique right like that's not really a horror movie but it is kind of a noir but it has that very striking um it, it it has like kind of that striking lighting that striking shadows and light kind of it it just like it's it's movies that i mean genre is just a, a marketing gimmick right it, it we could pull things apart and say why something is or isn't but i i uh like movies that are horror like hor- supernatural or just like a horror in general that also blends that detective aspect i guess aspects of saw maybe <laughs> but um i the list i had when i when i thought about it i was like well um there's cast a deadly spell there's the movies we're discussing today uh like something like the seventh victim from val luton but even that's like it's not really noir but yeah anyway it, this is like obviously like we're talking that it's, it's kind of a, a small list but this is uh this is a movie I really enjoy. This is a, a really cool one. But like, as I was saying with the fact that we've kind of been ruined with audience expectations is, I'm just going to go right into spoilers right now. Lewis Cipher. Like, <laughs> would that have been a surprise to anybody in 1987? Like what, who he is? Like, it's so obvious. And they... They couldn't have made it more obvious unless they had put horns and a tail on him, right? I like mean, they kind of did. He, he at looked the end, devilish. yeah, he's got the he's got the long fingernails, but at the end, oh yeah, that was creepy. He's got the eyes, uh, but and and plus, you know, we get we get we've had movies like this now, like uh, spoilers for movies we're not talking about, but everybody listening knows, uh, like The Sixth Sense or even Fight Club or. Uh, Jacob's Ladder, like movies where, or identity, right? Like movies where at the end we find out something about the character, like that 
well, in this case, uh, to really spoil it, uh, <laughs> Harry Angel searching for Johnny Favorite. Harry Angel is Johnny Favorite with amnesia. And there's a complicated story we're going to go through here in a minute. But oh, yeah. But he's, he's, you know, the devil, Louis Cipher, is trying to find Johnny Favorite. And it, it turns out he's just playing a game with Johnny Favorite, I guess. And he's trying to wrap up loose ends and get the soul he's owed. And it, it, I just wonder how much of that was surprising for an audience in 1987, because I kind of, just like took it for granted once we meet robert de niro and hear his name i'm like oh okay he's the devil and we get you know then suddenly, <laughs> then suddenly mickey rourke is having dreams of like pre-war or i guess like maybe right post-war no it, it's like I, I think it's supposed to be pre-war of a, a gi whose face you can't see and it's like oh okay he's looking for himself that's what this movie is <laughs> like it just it seems so obvious now, but I, I do wonder like how it would have been received by audiences at the time. And I, yeah, I, don't, up, I, I couldn't find people like saying whether or not they were surprised. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess it's a bit harder to gauge audiences, especially back then. But um, yeah, I, you know, they stuck with a particular theme. And um, yeah, I mean, the, and like you were saying, you know, this was uh, not a very typical uh, type of movie, especially horror noir. So this is not the kind of plot twist people would have, uh, you know, well, not expected, but, you know, what they wouldn't have seen it coming. So I I imagine if it, if it come out later, if it did come out around the same time as, say, uh, The Sixth Sense or even probably in the mid to late 90s, I think it would have had a much larger impact. Yeah, maybe because, yeah, the mixing of horror and noir wasn't, it, it's still not incredibly common, but it was not really known at the time. I mean, people weren't familiar with it, but it does kind of stick to its noir mystery elements for quite a while. Like the horror starts to blend, bleed in almost immediately, but it does take like a hard turn for those last 15 minutes into oh yeah into like now this is a real horror movie instead of just being a noir film with some creepy elements that we don't quite understand it becomes a flat out horror show um but yeah um, no that's the thing yeah it just totally twists at the end um and uh, yeah but it's the big reveal which uh, plays more into the noir side of the genre rather than the horror because, you know, it has the big twist and summation and the confrontation between uh, Angel and Cypher, um, which, yeah, again, you know, I feel like is more rooted in noir than horror. But uh, it, yeah, it, it does walk the line for most of the movie. Like a lot of it, you know, you can put up to kind of an ambiguous nature and, Harry's own PTSD and alcoholism and other problems and it's like it's only really outright at the end yeah so let's let's get into the story a little bit so Harry is just a a detective in New York um, he's Mickey Rourke so we think maybe there's something a little little off with him <laughs> but uh, he gets hired by a lawyer to go meet Louis Cipher and 
Lewis Cipher is looking for Johnny Favorite, somebody he made a deal with before the war, who then disappeared and like well went off to war right like johnny favorite went off to war yeah he was in he was drafted well it's well it's like uh he he was a uso performer and during the war he there was an attack and he was critically injured and had to be hospitalized and that's and i think they said something like he had plastic surgery and changed his face yeah because he had he had had a lot of facial scarring and uh, nobody at the hospital knows what he looks like. The people that saw him, he was all bandaged up. Um, and so he hires jo Johnny, or sorry, Harry Angel. Harry Angel goes to the hospital and he kind of like finds that there's something a little bit off that Johnny Favorite hasn't been there in years. And, and the doctor has kind of faked some paperwork to make it look like he was transferred or released. Um, and here's where the first death comes in because Harry Angel knows the doctor is hiding something he goes in breaks into his house and finds it like a morphine stash and he he interrogates the doctor and when the doctor's not answering him he kind of like locks him in his room and is like well you detox for a little while and i'll come back and maybe you'll want to talk he comes back and the doctor has been brutally murdered <laughs> yeah, shot in the face yeah it's pretty bloody i mean there, there's the the murders in this get pretty gruesome even though we don't really see most of them, that there is a lot of blood in this movie. Uh, which I think this is the first time Harry Angel decides he wants to quit the case. He's like, he tries a couple of times in the movie, but then he just keeps getting offered more money. And so he stays on. And I, I think he, he's offered five $5,000 at this point, which is quite a bit of money in 55. Oh yeah. I, I want to ask you what you think about De Niro in this movie. Because I think he has... <laughs> I think he has some good moments. I, I'm a little disappointed each time I watch it with how much he underplays it. Like not even uh, underplaying it to the point of menace, but sometimes it just seems like he's, like he's not imbuing the lines with anything. And maybe it's completely me. I don't know how people feel about this, but I, I, I find him bland. And I, I, I don't know if that's like a choice. Like if he wasn't trying to be menacing, he was just trying to be a boring person. So you wouldn't guess. But um, I, I kind of like, I, I don't know if I wanted Pacino in The Devil's Advocate kind of crazy, <laughs> but I, I would have liked a little bit more energy out of him. Um, I, I'm going to have to disagree. Uh, funny enough, okay. uh, we actually discussed our favorite on-screen portrayals of the devil on uh, Ion Horror the other day. And, and uh, De Niro's performance in Angel Heart did come up. And I actually like it. It's more, you know, the, that he's a very muted character for a lot of the movie. You know, you just think he's this kind of vaguely threatening uh, businessman. And he's, you know, just he's, he's a background player. You know, he doesn't really participate for much of the movie. He just kind of appears and talks to Angel. And he's very matter of fact. He's cordial. But, you know, just something about him is off. I, I, I do appreciate that kind of more subtle uh, portrayal and although it, 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 to be fair at the end he does really let loose you know <laughs> uh, we'll go into it more later I'm sure but you know he just really lays into An uh, Harry Angel at the end with the big confrontation so I, f I feel like there's a bit of that but you know for it's like the oh yeah for example like the egg scene that that scene was really creepy where uh, he's having a conversation with Angel while 
salting a hard-boiled egg, and then he brings up, did you know in in several religions, the egg is considered a symbol for the human soul, and then he eats it in front of Angel. Like, yeah. that, <laughs> yeah, that that fucks me up. It's a pretty good scene. That's a good scene. Um, sidebar, in your Ion Horror, because I haven't listened to that. Uh, it's not out yet. Oh, okay. So, did... Um, did uh, uh, did John Glover in Brimstone come up? Uh, it was a very short-lived television series on Fox in the like late nineties, like ninety-eight, ninety-nine. Uh, I am aware of the show, but uh, un- unfortunately, we did not bring him up. Oh man, did you ever see the show Reaper? Oh yeah, I loved Reaper. Like Ray Wise was awesome as the devil. Yeah, Brimstone is Reaper, but darker like there's humor in it but it's a lot darker and a lot of the humor comes from john glover as the devil because he just pops up like randomly like the person will walk into an elevator and there he is and and he'll be like he's always like eating something and like drinking like a big like gallon sized slushy or something um he's john glover is a great character actor but in brimstone it's some like an ex-cop is released from hell to track down all of these demons that it or damned souls that it escaped and he has to shoot them in the eyes to like send them back to hell um it, it was like it, I, I can't remember yeah it was on the sci-fi channel for quite a while okay well it was it aired on fox to begin with and i, I can't remember if it was just one season or two but i wish they would release that somewhere because i loved that show and mm. i wasn't able to catch all of it because i was in college at the time but it was a lot of fun uh anyway back to this um so for the acting i i I don't know maybe i'm wrong about that and i'll certainly like you know broaden my mind about it when i watch this again because i will be coming back to this i know i will i'll watch this again um i i will say he be de niro is much more successful at amplifying his performance there at the at the finale than um uh Mickey Rourke. And maybe we're going to disagree about this acting again, but when Mickey Rourke starts to have the realization and he, he isn't even having the realization, he's just like, he's kind of denying it. And he starts crying and he starts shouting at Mr. Cruzmark. I, and he like, I, I don't know. I, I did not like that bit of acting from him. I think he's fine. I like Mickey Rourke, but I, I just, there was something about that that rung very false to me. I don't know what it is, uh, but it, it seemed too actorly, like too exaggerated for what, especially for what the scene called for. And this scene, this movie is not subtle. This movie throws a lot of like kind of extravagant images and big emotions at you. But Harry has been so uh reserved in the movie like he gets freaked out and he wants to quit and he has emotion but he's not it, it's not in this very histrionic way and once he gets to that point i i i just watch it and i kind of feel embarrassed hmm. what do you think well i'm completely off base that's fine it's fine i, I don't know i mean and, you know, it's just the more I think about it, and, you know, I'm looking at the, um, uh, the you know, the Wikipedia page for Angel Heart to, you know, just kind of 
uh, refresh my memory but yeah just they they were not very subtle with a lot of the movie like i mean you got uh characters named harry angel lewis cypher epiphany proudfoot uh <laughs> the the cruise marks toot sweet you know so they it's um very pulp which again kind of goes toward the uh, noir side of the genre uh but i wouldn't say it really detracts from the movie you know yeah i i don't think it does for the most part i i do kind of like how obvious it all is and yeah i mean they even lampshaded at the end where harry calls out louis cypher for using the uh alias louis cypher which is a homophone for lucifer yeah, and he, he he calls it basically like a dime store trick or something like that. Um, <laughs> but it's it's Alan Parker, who I, I mean, I haven't seen like a lot of his movies, you know, Bugsy Malone, Fame, with strangely like really big in my, more of the TV series, I guess, when I was a kid. Um, and of course, like Pink Floyd, The Wall, which mm. I love. And that is that is also not a subtle movie. Like it, it, his, his symbolism can be like blindingly obvious a lot of the times. And I, I, I kind of think that works in both the wall and this no, normally, like um, there's the, the fan that that's kind of like, we keep cutting to a shot of the fan and the fan is kind of a, an, a clue that Lewis cipher is either there or there's something like strange going on or there's something, honestly, I'm not incredibly like entirely sure what the fan means, but every time we see Lewis cipher, there's, in the shot or a cutaway to like a mounted fan in a window on the ceiling on a um, on a countertop that is not quite working properly like it's just like moving very slowly and creaking mm. and i mean i can guess on on what he's trying to say with that or, or maybe it's just like uh, it, it's so hot i don't know there's like a lot of different ways you can go with it but i'm not quite entirely sure what it means i just know it means that it, it's kind of a symbol of hell or hellish forces <laughs> yeah again uh that was another kind of influence on silent hill just that kind of uh rusty backgrounded like uh industrial uh aesthetic um especially like the elevator you know just uh, that that was such a creepy motif throughout the movie and yeah, there's there's a lot of rust and a lot of red if you look if you look closely for out angel heart yeah there is it it's a very nicely designed movie like the production design is great the locations and just like the the uh the set decorations and, and the architecture very well chosen in this movie mm -hmm. so eventually uh harry angel's investigation takes him down to uh down to um, Louisiana and where they're at is not supposed to be New Orleans, right? Uh, no, it's, it's New Orleans. It, well, that's where they filmed it, but they, they give the name of the town and it's not New Orleans. Maybe it's. Oh, right, right. It was like somewhere to, outside of New Orleans. Maybe that's what it is. I couldn't, or no, no, actually the Wikipedia page says he goes to New Orleans, although maybe, maybe at like some point in, in the story, he kind of goes outside of there a little bit, but uh, yeah, it's basically New Orleans for the majority of the movie. Okay, okay. So he, it, it takes him down there to a um, to uh, Johnny Favorite's old uh, lover. I think it's old hangouts, like the clubs, yeah. the blues uh, blues joints. 
Well, yeah, he's looking for a mu musician that played with him and he finds him. He's looking for his old, like Johnny Favorite's old uh, lover or, uh, and it's, uh, uh, it's Charlotte Rampling. And then he finds, you know, Epiphany Proudfoot, who is Johnny Favorite's daughter. And it's Lisa Bonet uh, in, in a movie that kind of like, I guess, ruined her, like, not, not that in hindsight, like this, this news is, lands different, but this, this movie did kind of like sour her relationship with Cosby and like her, her uh, job on that show, I guess, because of oh, the, yeah, that, that, I mean, that's a whole story in and of itself. Yeah. And again, I, the irony that, yeah, she was kind of blacklisted for doing this movie and well, without going too deep into it you know just everything that happened with cosby the last few years yeah yeah even though i guess he he advised her to take the movie i don't know if he'd write a script i didn't know if he knew she'd be naked mm. um but yeah so we we it's all like new orleans it's all very damp and hot and very uncomfortable looking he brings with him his his like path of murder because everybody he talks to everybody he meets ends up brutally murdered uh and you know he at least has no memory of doing it he you know it, but uh somebody is killing all of the people that he is investigating or trying tracking down to try and find johnny favorite anybody who might know anything about johnny favorite yeah um, no and it was very creepy too just the way that was said because it was always like every time he talks to one of the witnesses or friends of uh, of uh, Johnny Favorite, like it, like he walks away or he steps away, and then he comes back and they're dead and brutally murdered in just the most horrific ways. Like when he's talking to that old guy, and he comes back and he's like cooking in the gumbo pot. Yeah, yeah, and that that's like he's gone for just a second because that's when he's having his freak out, right? He like goes into yeah. a different room and like shouts for a minute. Um. And then, of course, another spoiler alert, we find out at the end that it, it has been Mickey Rourke killing all of these people, right? Like, but he's he's been kind of controlled in doing it. Yeah, that, yeah, there's a lot of ambiguity about that, like whether, um, you know, it's uh, Johnny Favorite who's committing the murders to try and cover it up or if it's uh, the devil making him do it. Although I, I don't think that it's that. Like I, I do feel like it's probably Johnny Favorite, uh, killing them to try and cover up what, uh, you know, his deal. But well, but but Johnny Favorite is Harry Angel, so exactly. Uh, like but, I'm not. Are you saying because this is this is an interpretation I didn't think of? Are you saying that enough of um, Johnny Favorite's consciousness exists that he is sending Harry Angel away while he kills people? That's what I was thinking, kind of okay. a Jekyll and Hyde type of thing. Okay, because it, I always thought that it was the devil working through him, because there's the 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 big scene, the big like showcase scene for all this is when he and uh, it's the sex scene with him and Lisa Bonet, where suddenly right. rain starts or like blood starts raining from the ceiling of the hotel room it's intercutting mm. some very physical very vigorous lovemaking with more violent actions um and you know screaming and it it certainly does not look like a pleasant act <laughs> in either oh, flash yeah. that we're seeing and then 
he leaves in the morning and comes back and the cops are there and she's dead. And so those flashes that we were getting are, I'm, I'm assuming, were images of him killing her and maybe assaulting. Mm. Um, and of course, it's it's his daughter, which the cop cop asks, like, what's your relationship? And he's, he says, she's my daughter. And uh, because he's, he's realized at this point that he he is the person he's been hunting. He is Johnny favorite. Because mm -hmm. so your theory then brings up something I am pretty sure about, but I'm not certain is that, I mean, Lewis Cipher, the devil, knew Harry Angel was Johnny favorite the whole time. I yeah. mean, there's no way he couldn't, right? So yeah. was he using Harry Angel to track down, like, did he need Harry Angel's help to track down all of these people, like uh, Margaret Cruzmark and uh, what's his name, the dad? Yeah, I don't think uh, it was so much he was after them. Uh, I f he w he only wanted, because that's the thing, he only wanted uh, Johnny Favorite, but that's the thing, like, I, f I think it was that he did Johnny Favor did succeed, so the devil couldn't get his soul. So he needed to kind of put uh, Johnny Favorite as Harry Angel in such a position that he could get uh, that he could damn his soul again and get get both of theirs, or okay. something like that. Yeah, because I um, I guess we should explain what happened. So. Johnny Favorite sold his soul to the devil for success, basically, or did something like he and Margaret Cruzmark and Ethan Cruzmark, Margaret's father, and um, what's the other guy? Is it uh, Toots? Okay. Oh yeah, Toots Sweet. That they're they are into black magic, and they do make a deal with the devil. And Johnny Favorite figures out a way to cheat the devil, where he he puts his consciousness into some random soldier, like soldier's body um somebody they just grabbed from times square and uh v-day yeah and so the then this person that is johnny favorite is harry angel now and he becomes a private investigator well no because he gets oh my gosh i'm sounding so unprepared so he gets drafted. That part is true. Like he does go off to war, right? And well, that ha well, that's the thing. It happened after the war. So when did he go to like? So the whole going to war thing never happened, right? No, he did. I think it was that uh, he sold his soul, went to war, got disfigured in a bombing, and uh, had his face redone. And then they go to Times Square after the war because I think it was like V Day or something. And they and yeah, they pick up some random soldier and then steal his soul to put his soul into. See, I I don't think he actually got his face changed at all. I think that's just a a cover, a, a cover for why he would look so different. But that's possible. I mean, so that's that's a thing. A lot of this is ambiguous, so it's open to interpretation. Yeah. So I'm I'm trying to figure out then the timeline of things because. So he does, they do the, they do the ritual and whatever happens, how, whatever the timeline, Harry Angel does not remember being the soldier, nor does he remember being Johnny favorite. He is kind of a new person, right? Because mm -hmm. 
I'm assuming because then like the guy, he's got no memory. He somehow ends up in a military hospital, which is what makes me think that, uh, or in a coma in a military hospital or, or unresponsive in any way, which is what makes me think he ends up going to war after he switched the bodies, because why else is he in that hospital for so long? Then Margaret Cruzmark comes back with her dad. They grab Johnny favorite, Harry, Harry Angel, Nobody sees the person's face because his face is still covered at this point. And because he's got no memory, they just decide to dump him back in Times Square because that's the last place the person would have remembered and maybe it'll trigger something in him. And then years go by, like 14 years, and this person they've dumped in Times Square becomes, not, not 14 years, like a decade maybe, this, this person they dumped in Times Square becomes Harry Angel, a private investigator. Which is something I'm like very confused about because I don't I don't know if you dump too many catatonic people in Times Square they're going to become as successful as Harry Angel became in this movie, but um, I don't know I'm I, I I feel so unprepared but I did just like watch this movie again and I I'm a little bit unsure about the timeline of everything. Yeah, well, like I said, it's it's very interpretive. So uh, I wouldn't say you're unprepared. It's just, uh, you know, a matter of kind of sorting out your thoughts because, you know, there's a lot of different ways it can be seen. Yeah, I I guess another thing I'm I'm a little bit weirded out about is. No, nobody rec recognizes Harry Angel as Johnny favorite. And that's fine for like the people at the hospital, the, the doctor, and these people who wouldn't have seen his face. But well, like all the people like Margaret Cruzmark, her dad, Ethan, Toot Sweet, they would have seen Johnny Favorite's new face. They would have seen the body of the person they put Johnny, Favor or Johnny Favorite's consciousness into. And yet he's showing up and hanging around them and they don't, at least they don't act like they recognize him. They don't seem to know who he is. He even gives Charlotte Rampling who's going to do a reading, she, he gives Charlotte Rampling, or Margaret Cruzmark, who, who's a, a spiritualist, mm. he, he, he gives all of Johnny Favorite's information when he talks about his birthday and where he was born and stuff. And yet she still doesn't seem to have any recognition. Like she, you can see she thinks something's up by him giving the name, but then he, he says he's looking for Johnny Favorite and she never says anything about it. <laughs> like, um, I, I'm, so I'm just wondering, like, why nobody recognized him when they should have seen him? They were part of the, the ceremony that put his consciousness into that body. Uh, I don't I'm know. sorry, I don't mean to be point, poking holes and like dropping all of this on you. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, I'd have to double check the timeline. And again, you know, just a lot of, a lot of amb ambiguity to it. But yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. I don't know if you're... I don't know if all of it is meant to to stand up to scrutiny because a, a lot like Silent Hill, at a certain point, the world of this movie seems to become very metaphorical. Like it doesn't seem to be quite in the real world anymore. Yeah, no, I'm with you. There's a real dream or nightmare logic to it. So uh, I don't have a lot more to say. At the end, you know, Lewis Cipher confronts. Um, confronts uh johnny favorite harry angel I mean, mm. he reveals himself as satan his eyes are glowing and he now says that like you've, you've had 14 years in this 
like in another man's life and now he's taking him back but johnny favorite doesn't remember any of it but he's taking him to hell and uh that's the end is is johnny favorite going down that elevator right yep that it's uh an allegory for him going to hell yep uh i i will say i'm not gonna i actually don't have too many notes about this but i'm gonna say that i was reading an article uh mickey rourke uh says that he was cast in the irishman for scorsese but robert de niro had such a difficult time working with uh mickey rourke at the in on this movie did not like it will not work with him ever again and oh, God. had uh had him removed from the film basically he, he had him uncast because he, he said he wouldn't work with him that's this is basically all coming from mickey rourke but he says that uh, he didn't get along with Robert De Niro from the very first day, even though he, De Niro's only in a few scenes. He's not in this movie a lot, so and it's his scenes are very limit limited because yeah, he's he's just mostly just sitting down and talking with him. Yeah, so uh, I mean, we all everybody's heard or people should know. And Mickey Rourke was kind of a bad boy at this time, so I can see him being pretty difficult, especially with De Niro, who's always seemed a little bit more measured. Like he's a he's a big method guy, but he also seems very professional like he's not going to be you know tearing up hotel rooms and <laughs> and uh making the set a living nightmare for people which is kind of stuff you hear about rourke at this time oh yeah but uh so that, that's funny he lost out on on pretty uh prestigious work now now that he's in well i mean he's he's kind of faded away again he had that uh that return with the wrestler and you know he was an iron man too and he, seemed to be making a big comeback and now he's he's kind of you know just showing up in directed video stuff these days he was in a revenge movie i saw on hulu recently plus he was uh the narrator like kind of host of uh that anthology nightmare cinema yeah which i i hear i hear i heard uh, i think mick garris was talking about it on a podcast that he did not want to be there like mickey rourke really made his displeasure known to everybody um mm. and uh honestly i really don't care for that that part of the movie anyway i don't i'm not really i like that movie a lot i hope they get to do more i i think i'd be fine with somebody else coming in or them just doing a different uh a different style of wraparound anyway gotcha um do you have anything more you want to say i mean um well yeah, no, I feel like Angel Heart has kind of gotten its due recently. Like I said, you know, it was an influence on Silent Hill, and uh, it seems to be more lauded by uh, people nowadays. Because uh, when it first came out, it it was a box office failure, and I don't think it did so well critically. But it definitely, in recent years, it does have an appreciation. Uh, I was fortunate enough to see it at the New Beverly back in 2013 in a double feature with uh, Michael Mann's Manhunter, and yeah, yeah, it played really well with a crowd. And I've, uh, you know, uh, heard it play at uh, other revivals. So I, I do think it's getting the devil's due, as it were, and. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, it it is definitely better than what it had received. So I'm glad uh, it's better appreciated nowadays. 
Yeah, it's like I, I know I spend a lot of time poking a little bit of poking holes in this story, but um, I do think like from a experiential view, this is a really good movie. Like it, it is, it has great atmosphere. It has great performances that I, I, I mean, I, I, I maybe came across as too harsh on this movie, especially the performances when I was kind of complaining about them. But uh, I, I think it's got great atmosphere. It looks terrific. It has some really awesome set pieces and some really creepy stuff and is very, it's very interesting and entertaining. Um, even though like, you'll probably see where the story is going, even if you hadn't listened to this episode, it is pretty kind of, uh, I don't know if I'd call it cliche these days, because this isn't like a movie they're doing all of the time, but it, it, it's very obvious to people who have, have watched this type of movie for the past couple of decades. Right, yeah, I mean, the threads are kind of easier to spot. Yeah, uh, but uh, recommendation for me too. I'm glad you picked this, I'm glad I got to see it again. Uh, it is something I will probably be watching again. Uh, I don't know when, but I'll watch it again. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I definitely uh, would be down for watching it, watching it again myself. Like it's just if it's one of those movies I feel like I see at least once a year. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, the next one is maybe like that for me. The next one we're going to talk about, which mm-hmm. I guess we can segue into right now. We're going to take it unless you have anything you want to say. I don't want to steamroll over you. Oh no, no, I'm good. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break. And listen to the trailer for 1995's Lord of Illusions. Something is watching. Something is listening. Something is coming. How would you like to see the world the way it really is? What's going on here? Detective Harry Damour is walking a path. I want you to help me. Will you take the job, Mr. Demore? Where do I sign up? Between what can be seen. People are dying here. I want to know why I've heard a name. Somebody they talk about in whispers. Who? Nix. And what must be feared? Nix is dead and buried. What the hell is wrong with you people? Haven't you seen enough to know that doesn't matter? No. I don't want him getting in the way. Always waited too long to have the homecoming spoiled. Every step he takes, the drone, the dark side, don't like that. Not much. It's your destiny. Accept it. Brings him closer to the truth. He could get into people's heads, make them see things, terrible things. See, that's his best trick. No illusions, just the truth. Mix is back from the dead. Then he is some kind of a god. In a world where magic is real, death is the ultimate illusion. I was born to murder the world. Are you ready for my wisdom? It's not real. Come with me, Damor. I've got so much power to give you. All you have to do is beg. 
Lord of Illusions has writer-director Clive Barker bringing to the screen Harry Dumour, a recurring character throughout several Barker stories and novels. The film is loosely based on one of those stories, the novella The Last Illusion, and features Scott Bakula as Dumour, another New York private investigator. Dumour is called out to LA on an insurance case, but quickly finds himself embroiled in something far bigger and more mysterious, a metaphysical battle between magicians for the fate of the world. And that sounds a little ridiculous. Actually, a lot of Barker's stuff sounds kind of ridiculous when you boil it down to its essence, but uh, you really need to kind of get his uh, flavor and like his tone, his manner of telling a story to really get what's what's terrific about a, a what about his work um i'm kind of stumbling over here just quickly i'm going to say lord of illusions i saw it on video i did not get to see it in the theaters um but like i, I rented it as soon as it came out because clive barker is one of my favorite authors has been since i was a kid but a young teenager um and his movies he's only done three of them like he i think he's terrific he is better than anybody else at bringing his worlds to screen. And that is not usually the case when it comes to authors or, or people who are not filmmakers naturally. Um, I will say the Lord of Illusions, I kind of did not like when I first saw it. I thought it was cool. Mm. I thought it was kind of a little bit disappointing. Um, of course, to find out years later that there's a, a director's cut and if you had, like it's significant, the changes, it's not a, lot of footage it's not like two hours of footage but it is significant additions to the story that i think help um but that theatrical version i was kind of a bit disappointed but i love barker so i watched it again and i loved it and it kind of like i had this like love-hate relationship with it for a while until finally i got the director's cut um back on vhs days and have just like full-fledged love this movie ever since but what what's your history with this How, When's the well, first time you saw it? And well, well, I'd, I'd say um, the first time I saw it was on TV. It, you know, it's one of those things where it didn't do so well theatrically. So it kind of became a cable TV mainstay, mostly on the sci-fi channel, probably. Uh, so I caught it on TV, which, um, you know, it's one of those things where I saw it anachronistically. So I'd like see bits and pieces while flipping through channels until I eventually saw the whole thing. Um, and yeah, it, it, it didn't stick with me as much initially, but later as I got into Barker's works, um, it, it did uh, interest me more and I did come to appreciate it more. Um, and uh, it, it is definitely different, especially in terms of Barker's work, but I think that just uh, makes it more enthralling. Um, and again, you know, it's a it's a horror noir, which you know is so rare, you know, even, you know, over the years. So uh, it's unique to say the least. Um, and I rewatched it yesterday, and and uh, oh, and that's the other thing too. I watched the director's cut because I got the Screen Factory Blu-ray, which unfortunately I believe is out of print. So it is fascinating to kind of see Barker's full vision uh, that he had in mind for Lord of Illusions. The the thing with that director's cut is that was always part of his deal with the studio was they, they kind of enforced cuts to make the, the story a little bit more uh, straightforward and probably a bit shorter. And yep. he 
agreed to those because the deal was always going to be there was a director's cut, which is not not all versions. Like I know the rental I had was not the director's cut, but on VHS, the one I, I bought was a director's cut and my DVD was always a director's cut. I think um, whoever gets Lord of Illusions next, whoever releases it, I think the director's cut is kind of the the only way you can see the movie these days. Uh, well, actually, no, the Blu-ray does come with a theatrical cut. Theatrical cut. And and then there's further deleted scenes as well. But um, I don't know if you did you watch any of those deleted scenes? Uh, the ones that I aren't did. in the cut, they're like on their own. I uh, didn't get the chance to go for the deleted scenes, uh, unfortunately. OK, well, uh, they're 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 interesting. They're nothing like earth shattering. Um, you can watch them and go like, yeah, I can see why he would cut these out. They're not really needed. Uh, the director's cut is superior to the theatrical cut. I'm just stumbling over my words there. It, it is superior to the one that we got in theaters in every way except for one, which we're going to get to later. I'm going to, there's one scene in the director's cut I wish he had left out. <laughs> um, but I, you, you talk about this as kind of like, it being unique is even among Barker's filmog filmography. And that is true. And I think it's what led to me being disappointed the first time I saw it is because Hellraiser is like this epic, like genre breaking movie that really was new. Like there was nothing like Hellraiser before Hellraiser. Mm. And then Nightbreed is this epic, like I describe it these days as like the dark crystal for adults. Like it's an <laughs> R-rated adult fantasy, which they don't make. Like that, this type that a movie with the scope of Nightbreed, especially when you see the director's cut. Yeah, no, and he even is, called it the Star Wars of monster movies. Oh, I did I I missed that quote, but I'm I'm gonna say a movie of kind of the scope and style and what is being said and shown in Nightbreed, it just doesn't like, it doesn't exist, right? I, I can't think of another movie that's quite like it. And it, it is actually the, the movie that got me into horror. Like um, I'm eventually going to do a Nightbreed episode and that's going to be three hours long and intensely personal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it is, and it will not feature another movie because I'm gonna just want to talk about Nightbreed. But, um, and then you get to, Lord of Illusions, which is out of the three movies that Barker has directed, the most unapologetically just a genre story, right? Like he's he's still putting his unique spin on it. It's his worldview, so it is different than anything else that's quite like it. But it it's it's the one where he is just telling a genre story, right? Like it's not it's not kind of breaking any molds quite the way that his previous two films did, and I. I mean, I like it. I, I don't know what I was like missing at the time. Like I said, I'm going to say a lot of it's the fact that the director's cut is so much better. But um, but yeah, it, it is, you come off of those two movies and Lord of Illusions is, uh, it does feel pretty minor. Even though, and you said this on Twitter and I decided not to say anything. You talked about Daniel Van, is it Bargain? Daniel, Daniel Van Bargain. Daniel Van Bargain. Von Bargain is i think right up there with doug bradley like he is the best 
at with Doug Bradley. They are the best at making Clive Barker's dialogue sound the way Clive Barker wants it to sound, right? Like it's it's oh, that, yeah. it's that really like poetically horrifying. Yeah. And Daniel von Bargen is so fantastic in this movie as Nix, the villain. Yeah. It I can't even remember how I, I got onto that. But anyway, well let's just talk about Daniel von Bargen then. He <laughs> which is fun yeah, it's just funny to me because the other major role that most people know him for from is uh George's boss from Seinfeld. Oh yeah, well I was gonna think Malcolm in the middle. He's the military commander when the brother is in military Oh shit, I, d- I didn't even realize that. And I think of that, and he is a a SWAT team commander in Silent of the Lambs. He's only got like two lines, but mm. um, I I pick him out every time I see him. He did not have like he never became a household name. He did not have a uh, like huge career, but he's an actor that I. I always notice when I he's in something. He's and, a character actor. Yeah, no, he's such a great presence, and he died a few years ago. And it was like it was a really, I mean, it was a pretty big loss. Like he's such a like his presence. He's so much fun to see on screen, and then you you see him in this, and he's terrifying in this movie, right? He's very scary in kind of a banal way, which is something that Clive Barker does too, which is kind of like the just have like it's gr- he's grandiose but he's also like a really schlubby guy and he's yeah he's and he's just, he's just like wearing a wife beater for a large part and of his uh, like first appearance and he just looks dirty and sweaty yeah but, yeah he looks like a greasy guy but he's he, but, he, he has such pose and the way those words roll off of his tongue he's terrifying in this movie and then you see malcolm in the middle and he's hilarious he's very fun <laughs> in malcolm in the middle um yeah and and yeah just and just he's very charismatic too like he, he, yeah he looks like uh yeah like just just a schlub uh but he's also the head of this fanatical murderous cult and like they they even introduce him like pontificating to them and talking about the, how the fire spoke to him and he is the puritan and uh, and he's got he's he's tossing the the fire like a ball of fire from hand to hand yeah, like a baseball. Yeah, I. So here is something that maybe also contributed to me not liking this movie at first. Is it is nineteen ninety five, and it features a lot of nineteen ninety five CGI. Yes, and a lot of it has not aged as well. It didn't even look good then. I remember thinking at the time, like that doesn't look too hot. <laughs> um, yeah, kind it, of PlayStation One era graphics. Yeah, and it's so it. I mean, CGI ages so poorly, or at least it did. Like, they're getting better at it. They're always getting better at photorealistic CGI. But, like, I don't know what else he could have done, especially with the budget they were probably giving him. So I'm not going to fault mm. the movie, but it, it is such an eyesore, some of these some of these graphics. And some of it looks really cool. Like, I, I love the effect, just how blurry. And it, when when he makes people see the world, as it really is how he says and like everything splits apart and it's just basically like really gross like fibrous rotting flesh yeah and yeah yeah no there's just that again those barker lines like see uh see the flesh through god's eyes yeah yeah you know, just and, again like it, 
it's always it's always a, a zinger. And I like the way that looks. And there's something about that early CGI where it's not like the composition is not right, is not quite right. The lighting is different. They haven't quite gotten it. So it looks blurry compared to everything else in the film, too. Like it just mm. it sticks out. In those moments, I love the way that looks. And right, we're here in the beginning. The so the beginning is we see he's he's running this commune. Uh, a like dangerous looking commune, a kind of apocalyptic cult. It looks like yeah, it's like a dead dog and like the this weird Barker art of like uh, barbed wire and rusty nails. Yeah, and he we we see that there is a car racing towards the commune. Our heroes, well, one of our some of our heroes get out. Uh, Kevin J. O'Connor, who will be following a little bit more when he's older, uh, gets out. And these are people that left the cult and are coming back because Nick's the Puritan has kidnapped a young girl and they've come to save her because they know what he's going to do. And, and uh, I also got to say, I love that, you know, just this opening is uh, kind of stands on its own as its own story or, you know, it's a great prologue. Yeah. It, it I'm, 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 I agree. It also has some of my favorite imagery in the movie when Nix gets into Swan's head and says that line you said, see a world through God's eye or see the flesh through God's eyes. And he's he's seeing everything a little bit different. And then his friends come in and shoot Nix. And the effect, when it shows how uh, Swan is seeing this, there's a, sh a shot where they shoot him and his head, who's like, which is like center of the frame, like there's like a ghostly screaming version of his head floats up off of his face. Yeah. It's, oh, and, it's and, so and for context, cool it was actually uh, the girl uh, who shoots them. Oh, you're right. You're right. The girl um, who will grow up to be Famke Jansen. <laughs> yeah. Dor uh, Dorothea. I wasn't sure if I should spoil it, but yes, that, that is her. No, we're, we're like, I think anybody that's listening is going to know that we're talking about like we don't need to go through plot beat by beat, but we're definitely going to be talking about spoiler. You know, yeah, fair spoiler. enough. But yeah, no, I, I agree that it was a pretty uh, great effect, and I'm sure it would have been uh, a good scare, you know, to see that in the theater with uh, louder volume. But yeah, like she shoots him, and he and he like does that ghostly whale thing, and and it gives them the opportunity to overpower him. So they just <laughs> it's kind of like RoboCop where they just keep on shooting him. And I mean, and it does show his supernatural power in that, like they, like film full of lead, but he just doesn't go down. So they have to use like some kind of magical imprisonment spell or something. Like they use this like medieval torture helmet on him, and like uh, Swan bites his finger to draw blood in order to bind uh, bind him. Yeah, yeah there, I like his use of magic in this. There's something very like kind of uh, earthy or not earthy, but very um, uh, folk kind of. Yeah. But like also very um, tactile about magic. Like it's not like very visceral. Yeah. Visceral It is not like, you know, Dr. Strange where it's just a bunch of like waving your hands around. It's you've got to do something that involves blood or some other bodily fluid. Um, mm -hmm. It involves like weird, uh, not just like incantations, but like kind of weird technology. Like 
Um, Nix's right-hand man, Butterfield, who later on in the plot, like what, 12 years later or whatever, is trying to resurrect Nix. He talks about how he had to build the tools himself. Like you, you just get the idea that magic and Clyde Barker, Clyde Barker's world is such work, right? It's not just like I learned something that's going to make it easier. Like I have to do really difficult things to change the world, which, which I, I, I really like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So after this, um, this cold open, I mean, it's not a cold open. The credits are happening, the, the, the prologue. Um, we cut to New York, a, a very obviously shot on a set in California, New York, <laughs> and they just like sprayed a hose at the windows to make it look like it's raining. Um, man, I, I do love this movie, but you can tell he's working with a reduced budget. He can't quite do everything he wants to do. Um, the, the seams do show a little bit more in this movie than I think the others do. But we get our introduction of Demore who in this movie is played by Scott Bakula. Yep. Fantastic casting. <laughs> like I cannot, I, Demora shows up in several books. He was actually last in the Scarlet Gospels, the sequel to Hellraiser or right, Hellbound Heart. Right. I cannot see Demore as anybody but Scott Bakula. When I'm reading the book, it's Scott Bakula. <laughs> um, he's such perfect casting in this. And so he's he, like, I read interviews at the time, he was so receptive to like Clive Barker's vision. Like he was so into being this character um, that I'm very upset we never got the sequel they were talking about. Oh yeah, no, I, I mean, I read about uh, the kind of the plans they had in mind. Like they, uh, like Barker was hoping to kind of make it into a new franchise. And uh, I, I never read the books, but it, it did sound like there was a lot a wealth of material that he could have drawn on in order to do more uh, to more movies. The last illusion I have not read since I was a teenager in the one that this is based on. It, it's a very it's a much more slight story like Nix isn't in it at all. Um, it really is just the magician faking his death, which uh, Swan does at a certain point in this movie. Yeah, and um, and I mean, there's more to it. There's demons because he's he, there's all this stuff about how Barker just wants or not Barker, Demore just wants to be a regular private eye, but he keeps getting drawn to like supernatural crap. Yeah, like I do love that they have that kind of uh, background where it, one of his last cases involved a kid who was possessed by a demon, and you only see it in flashes, but like just the the kid being. Uh, gripped by that weird pale demon telling Demore to taste the darkness. Yeah, and that um, that demon is in the director's cut quite a bit more. Um, oh. it, it, I mean, it's still only just uh, it's still only just kind of flashes in that taste the darkness thing, but it is not. I think you get just like a a hint of it in the theatrical version because i remember when the director's cut came out being very surprised because i always assumed and if you haven't read the books or any of the books he's appeared in not going to be that mm -hmm. big a deal but lazy susan is kind of a demon that haunts demore like he's always got these flashes to like this demon called lazy susan that is, is lazy susan yeah that's the name of the demon <laughs> it's not like tormenting him like always with him but it, it just kind of like it's something that haunts him and that's what i assumed it was in this movie 
that that lazy Susan had possessed this boy. But um, if you ever read uh, The Great and Secret Show or Everville, which are mm. my favorite books Clyde Barker wrote, like he, he's he's been promising for decades the final book of that trilogy. And Demore shows up in the second one in Everville. And uh, Lazy Susan is a big part of that book. But um, he? It, it, it is something that kind of just goes with Demore for a while. Uh, and I haven't even read all of the, the Demore stories. I think there's others that haven't been published or collected in books. But um, Scott Bakula in this role, he got so into it. Like, you know that tattoo on his back? Uh, right, at one, right. At one point, that, that, that kind of rune on his back. It's because in the book, in the stories, Clyde Barker describes him as having a bunch of talismans tattooed on his body, like to like wards to ward off evil. And he right. always, and that wasn't in the like he just he didn't include it in the movie because he didn't think the the like they'd be able to heavily tattoo their leading leading man. But Demur read the stories and was like, "Hey, I want some of these tattoos." <laughs> and so he he uh, he requested the one on his back. That's dedication. Yeah. Um, and I did want to say, you know, you mentioned earlier that uh, this uh, that uh, Lord of Illusions wasn't as thematic, but I I, I would have to disagree because you know rewatching it, uh, they do bring up kind of um, uh, themes about religion and faith and the spiritual world versus the physical world uh like they like there's this great line where swan's talking about uh like one of the greatest secrets nicks taught him was that uh the flesh is the prison magic is what sets us free which you know especially coming from clive barker you can interpret a number of ways oh yeah yeah i don't mean to say that this movie is slight like that he's not putting anything into it i think it it definitely is 100% a Clive Barker, um, a, a Clive Barker story with everything that comes with it. I just think that when you stack it next to what Hellraiser, like Hellraiser just like completely kind of changed the horror landscape, right? right? And Night no, that's Breed, fair. Nightbreed being a failure was still like an ambitious epic, like highly ambitious epic that this is scaled back a little bit from those. And it's not like, Hellraiser is an epic. It's just like stylistically, there was nothing like it. We have the plot basically. Uh, Demore gets sent out to LA. It's kind of like uh, as a vacation. Somebody requests or like some somebody who finds him work requests him or sends him out there as a chance to just kind of like get away from the rain and the fallout from his last case. Yeah, and that's and that's the other thing too that, that it does. Uh, this is where like the noir elements come in because you know it's like he's sent investigating a minor insurance insurance fraud case and it turns into another kind of more typical noir case you know like uh miss you know like somebody's threatening somebody's life you know fake death uh you know that a deeper mystery so it he uh barker does show his uh appreciations for noir roots and it is interesting uh, to see how that kind of blends into his style of storytelling. Yeah, yeah I agree. I agree. And um, uh, it has all of those elements. Like it has, I mean, the femme fatale of Famke Jansen. Like she's not, yeah. she's not duplicitous in any way. Like, but she fits that look, and she is, um, you know, married to Swan, uh, who is 
kind of a, a, a huge David Copperfield style illusionist is what he, he's he's credited as, which when they go to see it's a, to his show, which is like one of the standout scenes in the movie. Oh, where, yeah. The Pantages Theater. Yeah. When they go to that and that scene where he he dies, quote unquote, <laughs> he's yeah. got that illusion with all of the, the swords falling and he's supposed to get his arms out of the, the chains in time or the um, locks. And, you know, he misses the timing and just ends up getting impaled by half a dozen swords that were hanging oh, on the yeah. ceiling. Fantastic scene. That scene's so cool. Um, I do wonder how he operates in this world with the magic that he has, because he's backstage getting ready for the show. And he like he closes his eyes in concentration and he just floats up into the rafters. And there's people downstairs crew or down on the stage, crew members are going like, how did you do that? And the guy's like, you idiot, it's wires. Like, wouldn't they have <laughs> put wires on him? Wouldn't they know whether or not it's wires? Like, it, it's so bizarre. But um, it, it, I don't know, it looks like a cool show. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, although they even make a point of that where, um, you know, like he learned all this amazing magic and abilities from Nick's. So he decided to go into show business and make a lot of money, which um, uh, Famke Jansen's character even calls him, calls Swan out on, you know, saying uh, that, you know, he could he could be using his abilities to help the world. But like he's uh, Swan's become very cynical over the years and doesn't think it, it would really help. So he just wants to, you know, use his abilities to make some money and live comfortably. Yeah, well, I, what do you think about Swan, Kevin J. O'Connor? And Kevin J. O'Connor is like a, an actor I really like, but he's got a, he's usually got like this really squirrely energy. Um, like he, he's really a little bit, not manic, but he's, he's a little bit hyperactive um, or, or certainly a lot more animated than he is in this movie because in this movie, he looks depressed the entire time like he is just like sleepwalking his way through everything <laughs> yeah uh, although i mean that, although not uh, himself like it's the character oh yeah 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 definitely it's the character i want to say the one scene i wish wasn't in the director's cut and it's not even the scene is bad it's just like i feel like i feel like he's not as good at saying the lines as like Daniel Von Bargen, or who is it that plays Butterfield? What's his name? He's awesome too. Um, let's see. Uh, Barry Dell. Uh, Barry Dell Sherman. Yeah, uh, who I don't know. I guess he's more of a stage actor, but he he's really good in this movie. But Kevin J. O'Connor, I feel, just doesn't quite get that. Like he he he's not as good with the lines, and he has a line in the scene where he is driving back it's after demore finds him and they're driving back they, and to what is going to basically be to save dorothea but they don't know what's that dorothea is in danger yet right um and they're having a discussion about what what nick's taught him that everything underneath is like you strip away the veneer and it's all just shit. and he does not sell that like, he just seemed like kind of a petulant 14 year old and it's it, it it's supposed to be like it causes demore to like drink like he, he's like give me that whiskey and it 
I don't know. It just doesn't, it, it hits my ear bad or like wrong. And I'm like, I kind of wish that it wasn't in there. Um, I mean, I guess I can understand what you're saying. And yeah, I guess it, some of his lines weren't as um, iconic as they were delivered by uh, Van Bargen. But, you know, again, I feel like it goes with the character because Swan's supposed to be broken. Like he had the potential to be this amazing wizard or, or magician, but, you know, just he's just, just kind of dragged down by his experiences with Nyx and, you know, just kind of the way of the world. So he just ha- hasn't lived up to his full potential. Yeah, no, I, I get that. I, I just, um, I don't know. I just don't think he he was, uh, I don't know. I don't like to criticize too much, but I just, uh, I, it doesn't, it doesn't feel right to me. Like his performance doesn't feel like the right choice. Like I, it is, you're right. It is like, what could he do? Cause he's supposed to be like really morose the entire time. But, um, but it doesn't, I think he's much better at just doing that like manic, I think of the movies he made with Stephen Summers, like The Mummy and Deep Rising, where he's yeah, kind of which like, is he, funny because this is before Deep Rising, so uh, him and Famke Jensen got to work together here before that. Yeah, and he is so great. He is the highlight. I mean, Tree Williams maybe is the highlight of or, or Famke Jensen, but his character in Deep Rising has some of the best lines and best delivery, and. Uh, he's so much maybe it's just because i see him now so much as that type of character but uh but yeah it, i mean maybe it's just hard for me to buy him as this guy you know fair enough and i mean it's i guess it's also like you were saying you know he's kind of up against uh you know scott bacula who uh fits so well as demore and uh of Van Bargen, who fits so well as Nix, and Femke Jensen as Dorothea. So he, I guess he just kind of felt a little out of place. Yeah, maybe. Um, and another another highlight for me, though, is just how they actually filmed this section of the movie at uh, Los Angeles's Magic Castle. Yeah, yeah. I, I always liked that scene, too. A um, lo- little bit longer in the director's cut. Uh, we get... Um, What's it? We get the more of that guy who who uh, is showing um, Demore around the Magic Castle. In the theatrical cut, he looks like he's just a like giving a tour, like he's a tour guide at the Magic Castle. But in the director's cut, there's like long scenes with him, like doing magic and talking to Demore. Um, and of course, yeah, and- oh, go ahead. I was going to say, there, I also love this. Uh, I was watching the, the uh, director's cut, but yeah, there's the scene where he uh, he's hanging out with the other magicians who are all kind of bitter about Swan. And I forget his name, but there's this character actor who plays that kind of pompous magician. Uh, Vincent Ciavelli. Oh, yeah, yeah, that guy. Um, yeah. And yeah, and he talks about how he could... And well, they talk about the differences between like uh, religion, miracles and magic. And he was saying like he could recreate any miracle from the Bible if given enough preparation. <laughs> then there's that funny exchange where Damore calls him out on his Brooklyn accent because he had this kind of pompous uh, Euro accent. And then he slips into a Brooklyn accent He's like, hey, fuck off, man. So uh, yeah, like there there were some highlights there, and also I, and the other thing is is that I, I hear it's kind of difficult to get permits to actually rec- uh, record or film 
at the Magic Castle. So the, the fact that Parker was able to pull it off was pretty interesting. Um, and also there's even that kind of investigation scene where he's going with that other guy. And like there's the hand trap with like the guillotine in the wall. And there there's like the hologram with the monster projected. So it, it was just a good excuse to, you know, kind of do kind of a fun house uh, setting and, you know, have all these characters pop up. Oh yeah. And um, I, I love the, the security at the magic castle because they break in and there's, there's that hologram that really, really scares the other magician that's, that's breaking in with uh, Demore. Yeah, it's like the brains exposed and it's like, it's a ghoul or something. It, I think that's some of the, like the, the most fun special effects in this movie. And it's supposed, it's supposed to look hokey, <laughs> but yeah. it, it it like you could tell it was like a, a real costume they made and they just kind of like did some stuff to it to make it look like it was a hologram i i think that's a lot of fun but it, it does it the magic castle just seems so hokey to me and at the time when i saw this i thought like oh that's really cool like there's this place where like it's a club for magicians and they have all this repository of information and you get down here and i've not been in the magic castle but you get down here and you get around it and you realize like this is just kind of a sad place for weird magicians, like weird stage magicians. And like it apparently just smells terrible inside. And it's kind of like not not the nicest place, even though um, they require you to wear a suit and tie. I've actually I've actually been a couple times. Oh, okay. So I'm talking out my ass then if you're gonna tell me it's fine. Um yeah, I would I wouldn't say I had a bad experience. Like I had I had a uh friend who performed uh, yeah, I can't, yeah, I went yeah, I think I've gone twice. Yeah, I had a friend oh, nice. perform. I mean, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit uh, kitsch. You know, they it, like you go in through a secret entrance, uh, revolving bookcase at the front, and also the food was kind of expensive. But yeah, I mean, you know, it is what it is. It's a uh, kind of magician's club, so you kind of get what you expect. Uh, but yeah, you know, it is what I think it is. But I think it's just as a like as a younger guy like you know young kids are into magic and i always right. thought magic was cool and now you're gonna grow up and it's magic's magicians just kind of seem like weirdos like stage magicians all seem like they're a little bit off and i mean but, i think they kind of uh, portrayed that in this movie too yeah <laughs> yeah um let's see what do i what else do i want to say i mean we haven't really spoken too much about butterfield oh was, yeah he was he was a definite highlight because, uh, yeah, like Nix only appears kind of in the beginning and the end of the movie. But yeah, Butterfield kind of uh, carries a lot of the plot as as the other bad guy, as like uh, Nix's chief acolyte who's trying to free him. Yeah, and he's he's just like a really creepy presence. Uh, Demore keeps running into him at, at, you know, things that he's investigating. And he's got this really, really tough scary probably on pcp uh bit of muscle with him who just like has sharpened teeth and he yeah like the things like out animal man yeah he like falls two stories after taking an extreme beating and then just gets up and walks away he gets like impaled with a bunch of shards of glass and you see him later and he's just like pulling them out of his stomach and talking i mean clearly causing yeah. him pain but he's he's not like not feeling it like he should um Oh yeah, but Butterfield is good. Like I, I really like the casting in this a lot. I think everybody. Oh, same here. 
does a really good job. I mean, Famke Jansen, she was having a moment in the mid nineties and man, like I, I, I wish that moment had kept going. I mean, she's had a fine career, but like she was like in everything. Uh, oh yeah. No, there's, yeah. She was uh, the queen of the nineties. Uh, Golden eye. Uh, we already said deep rising. Oh, one thing in the director's cut, I really like, I think it's a really cool addition is, um, there's a scene where Nix's acolytes who are now living all across America, just like regular lives, the people in the seventies, they were part of this cult. And now they're like housewives or they're working as a postal carriers. Um, they, uh, they all get a call to come back. They all get a letter in the mail saying to come back. And there's all these people are having visions of, um, having visions of like Nix's return. And oh, there's a scene where they're all, a montage of how they all just leave their lives, kill everybody around them and hit the road going back to Nick's. And I think, I think that caused him a lot of the problem, like some of the problems he had to edit out. Cause there's a scene where somebody has killed their entire family and you just see a bunch, a couple of dead kids in a kitchen yeah. lying in blood that oh, I yeah. think the studio was not, not thrilled about having that out there. Yeah. It might've been a bit too much for them, but uh, it definitely adds to the story. And yeah, just it was the fact that all these people were leading normal lives, and as soon as they hear Nix is coming back, they slaughter everybody in the in the vicinity and hit the road. And there's like that one dude who who like had all these snakes. Like he worked at a zoo, and like he killed a guy with poisonous snakes, and he's just driving with a car full of snakes while snake handling around his neck while driving. Yeah, yeah, that was that that was not in the theatrical. That was only director's cut, and it's really really neat. Um, there is a, a I'm a little bit curious because there were four people in the 70s that... Well, um, 82. 82, sorry. I wasn't thinking of the dates. There were four people in 82. There was Swan, Jennifer Desiderio. Um, I can't remember the other two's name, but we see the one guy. Uh, is it Casper Quaid? Was the, uh, yeah, yeah. That he, was grew, he grows up to be the psychic. And that's actually yeah. how um, Demura gets involved in the case because he follows the insurance scam guy to go get a psychic reading. And Butterfield's got him impaled with several knives. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> that, that he gets in the newspaper and that's what brings Dor. Sorry, my throat. Hold on. Uh, that's what brings uh, Dorothea's attention to him. But so we got Quaid. Jennifer Desiderio. Um, I think the other one's Pamela. Uh, Marine Pym. Oh, Marine Pym. Yeah, I think uh, I read that like there's an offhand line like that she killed herself. Um, yeah, like I expected, I kept expecting there to, I mean, I, I know she's not in the movie anymore because I've seen it so many times, but I still have expect there to be more with her. Like, we'll find out more about her or she'll show up like she didn't commit suicide. She's just been hiding out. I mean, that would be weird if two of the people decided to fake their own deaths, but um, it still just seems like, like we get scenes with everybody else that was there in 82, but we yeah, she's, never she's the odd one out. So I wonder if he had that story element, but cut it like, it's not even um, like he didn't even film it. He just cut it because he figured it'd be too much, but. It might have been uh, pacing issues. Yeah, maybe. Um, 
So then we get to, I, I'm just going to skip over and we'll go to the end because we've been talking about it for a little while. And I know you yeah. got to get going. Yeah. But we get Nix is back. Nix is not very happy with anybody. Oh, uh, and also just the fact that he's he's a lich now, a, a undead sorcerer. Because yeah. like he's, yeah, I mean, he looked schlubby before, but now he's like this like mangled corpse in a robe. Yeah, and he's got like a, these marks on his face. Like it's such a a physical, tactile look when they pull that mask off of him, and he's had that mask on for what is it supposed to be thirteen or fourteen years, something like that. Uh, thirteen years. Thirteen years, and the mask comes off, and it's got like there's like this sound to it as the the flesh that's been under the mask just kind of like. Because he's been buried, and so he's like, the, you can just imagine the moisture that's been building up under there. And like, yeah, but also the just, fact that yeah, there's something off about him in that he um, he hasn't rotted that much. Like his, I mean, yeah, I mean he's he's a, he's a corpse, but he's yeah, he's not nearly as uh, rotted as he should be. He doesn't look really rotted at all. He just looks a little like, like. Well, like he's starting to spoil, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Like he does that weird thing with his arm where he puts his arm out and like these like flesh bubbles start growing out of it. Oh yeah. Um, but he uh he I, I I like the makeup. I just love so much about this movie. But he gets such great lines here at the end where he, he talks about how he escaped the grave and now I have to give something back. And he he like causes it to rain in this in this compound and everybody starts to sink into the mud and then a sun comes out and it just like it is pretty cool i um i don't know i like this confrontation i don't understand quite why demore has to fly to go and stick his hands into I assumed it was him imbuing the more with his magical power that he needed to take out Nyx. Oh, okay, yeah, because he's he's been pretty been beaten pretty badly. He's probably pretty exhausted. They both are him and and uh, and Swan. Yeah, and Nyx like kind of in rage kills Swan and or like well he's already kind of like. They mortally wounds mortally wounded him. Yeah, it does but, that thing where like he use, uses his psychic powers and like he kind of crushes his organs from the inside or something. Like you yeah. actually see uh, his organs getting crushed. But then, like basically, Demore jabs his thumbs in his eyes and throws him down this big pit that appears to go to the center of the earth. <laughs> it goes down far enough that there's lava, and then and he then explodes, which is. It's such a, in a way, it's such a silly visual. Like, it's such a silly end to this. This, like, super metaphysical conflict ends with jabbing his thumbs in his eyes, throwing him down a hole, and he explodes. <laughs> and, then, and then, like, uh, Swan's body gets stripped to the bone by the explosion. Yeah, like, there's this big hurricane that, that kind of builds in the house. Yeah, although yeah, no, and uh, Swan did have some great lines. Like, I'm particularly a fan of, you know, I was born to murder this world. Oh yeah, Nix, Nix. Oh so, uh, yeah, Nix, Nix had that line. Sorry. No, no. Uh, yeah, no. Just he he goes full ham, you know, in that final confrontation, you know, waxing uh, about you know flesh and 
uh, how he wants to destroy the world. Like he, he wanted to become a god and then change his mind. So, uh, yeah. So it's basically looking like bad times if he gets out of there. So uh, Damore, Swan, and Dorothea have to stop him. Yeah, I I particularly like the the line. Um, what I'm trying to find, trying trying to remember exactly what it was. Where basically, like he's like somebody. He like he basically he's described. He says that he was a man who wanted to become a god and then changed his mind. Yeah, exactly. He's got this. He's got this very. Um, like kind of like he, he's just tired he's just like i'm a man who wanted to be god and changed his mind and he just like wants to be done with everything and that you're right that's like around the time he's saying like i was born to murder this world um god i i can't speak highly enough of, of daniel van he keeps saying von, van von bargain daniel van, god damn it, i'm doing it again <laughs> daniel von bargain i can't speak highly enough of him because he says these words he says these lines with such uh, with such the right level of commitment. And everybody talks about Doug Bradley as, as pinhead and how great and like erudite he is. Um, I think Von Bargen is right up there. I think he needs to be given his due by the horror community as just like one of the great villain portrayals in all of horror cinema. Oh yeah, no, I'm with you on that. Like it is a disturbing performance and opposite of that uh, i would say scott back in his performance of uh the more uh was also a highlight especially in their confrontation so you know it's it's too bad we didn't get more of that yeah i i love scott bacula like I, quantum leap was such a big deal to me as a kid mm. one of the first things i remember writing is i i mean i'm gonna use a lot i wrote a spec script for quantum leap back when it was on the air but i say that i was like 11 or 12 so it's not as if it was like a real spec script i just wrote a story that i was like maybe it is, they can make this an episode <laughs> um and i just love that show so much and every time scott bacula shows up anywhere like what is he on ncis or he was for a few years and i'm like i'm never gonna watch this show but i sure am happy that scott bacula is on tv <laughs> um <laughs> and i i really wish he would have he would have been able to do more of these. I think it's a mix. Like I remember Clyde Barker saying that um, Scott Bakula like stepped away from acting for just a little while, like maybe not even a year, but there was like a, some sort of personal tragedy in his family and that pushed back their work on the sequel to this. And then I, I think, I just think Clyde Barker's not been able to get funding for another movie or he may Badly, not that seems to be the case. He may not even be interested in directing again, but um, he's done three movies that he's he's written and directed, and they're all top notch. I love them all, and uh, you know you see stuff that's written that's directed by other people, and nobody seems to quite get it, <laughs> right. which is why he started directing in the first place. But um, but yeah, I I just kind of wish we'd gotten more. I want more adventures with his character, even though we I you know we can read books. He's got that yep. time anymore. Yeah. Well, uh, I got to check those books out sometime. Uh, yeah. Like, I think if, if I recall collect correctly, The Last Illusion is in the same collection that uh, Cabal is in, Nightbreed. Um, and there's two other stories. It's like a, maybe only one. It's like a four four story 
or for novella collection, mm. if I recall correctly. That's one I haven't read for a very long time. Uh, I, only, I usually only go back to Cabal. <laughs> um, right. Uh, but I highly, highly recommend The Great and Secret Show as just like that. When I was reading Clyde Barker, all of the Clyde Barker stuff in, in high school, that one is the one that just like blew me away. Um, oh, it's off my list. It's so cool. And then Everville was great. And it, I like he every time, every once in a while, every couple of years, Clyde Barker will tweet out a picture of what or send out to one of his sites a picture of his desk, just like as a teaser of things he's working on. And at any given time, he's working on 18 projects and we're never going to see any of them. He'll, he'll come out with something that he's never talked about. But um, for like almost 20 years now, he's been saying like, oh yeah, I'm almost done with the third book. of <laughs> It's the book of the art is what he's calling it. But I mean, I'll believe it when I see it. I just, I don't think we're ever going to see it. Yeah, well... It's just kind of the way it goes with yeah. <laughs> uh, his, his situation. Um, anyway, uh, do you have anything more that you would like to say about Lord of Illusions? Um, well, I guess I would say that, uh, you know, I feel like it's kind of the uh, underrated entry of uh, Barker's uh, directorial work and it deserves more love and, uh, just as a whole, we we could use more horror noir because these are both pretty exemplary and uh, it's a fascinating subgenre. So hopefully, you know, that makes a comeback in the future. Yeah, I agree. And I agree that this is underrated. I think it's it's it is beloved by the people who like it, like the people who love it really love it. But um, it just hasn't gotten the the attention that Hellraiser or Nightbreed have. Um, unfairly, I think, but uh, it's very worth your time. I really mm. like this one a lot. Uh, okay, so we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and we'll just have a couple of minutes. We're going to say our goodbyes, uh, but stick with us. We will be right back. All right, we're back and we're actually just about to get going, but first, uh, Jacob, anything going on right now? Anywhere we should send people to see what you're up to? Uh, well, you can hear me more on the iHorror News podcast, Eye on Horror, with my co-hosts, Jonathan Manuel Correa and James J. Edwards. So uh, check us out. That's Eye on Horror, E-Y-E on Horror. Uh, we're on Apple, iTunes, and uh, leave Spotify. And, you know, just uh, where a lot of those podcasts can be found. Awesome. Awesome. And um, so I guess that's going to be it for us. Uh, if you want to follow us along, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at TwoHeadedPod. Uh, if you have anything longer you want to send me or a question, there is a Gmail, TwoHeadedPodcast at Gmail. Um, reminds me, I should probably go check that. I haven't looked at it in a little while. <laughs> uh, but this is actually going to do it for us. This is uh, the end of the summer in the shadows. It's been a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a rough go of it, but I'm taking all of the blame for that because I, like I said, I've started a new job and all my scheduling has just been so hectic. I've been so tired and had no energy. We're coming into my favorite time of the year, spooky season, and this is kind of the intermediary. This is bridging the gap. We're going to be back next week. We're going to be talking all about horror movies. And, uh, you know, I, I love to do that. So 
yeah, thanks for sticking with us and join us next week. We'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks for having me again. Anytime, anytime.